0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network, Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Three hurricanes and a Trump. This is Thursday, September 7th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. There's a storm of new information on the Trump-Russia investigation, and we'll get to all of it after an update on the storms of nature that are forcing the largest evacuation in U.S. history. While recovery from Harvey still has a long way to go, Floridians spent the week buying water and gas and food and plywood, bracing for Hurricane Irma. It's a Category 5 storm as it tore through the Caribbean with winds of over 185 miles an hour, It's already taken at least 10 lives in the islands and decimated Barbuda, destroying 90% of all the buildings on that island. This 400-mile hurricane is the biggest Atlantic Ocean storm in recorded history. Florida's governor called it the biggest since Hurricane Andrew, only faster and stronger. No storm has ever stayed this strong for this long. It's now headed north, and although its exact path is still uncertain, it appears to be headed up Florida's eastern coast but all of Florida is on edge since the storm is three times wider than the state it's passing over. Governor Scott declared an emergency on Monday, giving everyone advance notice. Trump declared a federal emergency on Tuesday for Florida, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. With the storm expected to make Florida by Saturday morning, the Key West Airport closes tonight. Key West was evacuated along with much of the Miami-Dade area, Broward County, and Fort Lauderdale and other spots close to the water on the Sunshine State's delicate tip. Nearly a half million people were being evacuated as a storm surge of 18 inches approached areas already prone to flooding. Gridlock is guaranteed for what will be the biggest evacuation in American history. Six million people leaving Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, millions more along Florida's east coast, and at least three million leaving Georgia and the Carolinas. The shelters in South Florida opened when the school day ended yesterday. Today, those schools are shelters. 7,000 National Guard troops were called up to assist. Storm crews from around the country that had just returned to their homes in states other than Texas had just enough time to repack for Florida. We now know that more than 63 people died in Hurricane Harvey and the flooding it left behind, half of them in Harris County, Texas and the recovery after the storm is underway but will drag out over months, years for some. FEMA put 53,000 people into hotels. Those people and the thousands who've been living in shelters are venturing out now that the water has greatly receded. Normal water levels are still months away, although Houston's mayor has declared that city open for business. Some homes are still flooded. Nearly 7,000 homes were destroyed, with another 37,000 homes damaged. Trump has asked Congress to start with nearly $8 billion in disaster aid, although recovery may cost $180 billion. The House, just in time, has passed that $8 billion down payment. The lawmakers in the House have reportedly agreed to do this without shutting down the government with a fight over raising the debt ceiling, an amendment that's to be tacked on to the relief bill in the Senate. Democrats in the White House say they were ready to go along with that amendment, but House Speaker Paul Ryan and the old Tea Party wing of the House are shooting down any connection between the relief funding and the debt ceiling. Trump's deal with the Democrats shocked Republicans who wanted to extend the debt ceiling to cover 18 months instead of three. Republicans wanted to put off that decision until after next year's midterm elections so they couldn't be hurt at the ballot box. But Trump blindsided the Republicans by siding with Democrats and further alienated the Republicans he's been attacking in speeches and on Twitter the same Republicans that will have to decide whether to impeach him. Concern continues about the health hazards of Hurricane Harvey mostly contaminated floodwater, bacteria from washed out sewers and chemicals from industrial sites commingled with rainwater. The Texas coast, along with the oil industry, is home to many of the nation's chemical companies. People exposed to the floodwaters are reporting skin infections. And benzene has been detected in the air in Houston. Mold forms in that warm, humid weather on surfaces that had been exposed to the water. People are using fans and dehumidifiers in their saturated homes, ripping out carpets and padding. Some are even ripping out floorboards, and many are tearing out the drywall that isn't dry anymore. Some are wiping with alcohol or bleach anything they want to save that was contaminated with that water. Homeowners are being urged to wear masks to filter the air that they're breathing. We still don't know what was spewed into the air around that chemical plant in Crosby, Texas, as the company continues to keep its secrets three of Arkema's chemical tanks had exploded and or burned on their own. The other three were intentionally ignited to end the agony of waiting for them to inevitably self-combust. As for the giant plumes of dense black smoke that poured from each of those six facilities, an EPA official called them incredibly dangerous. Area oil refineries were still shut down, still surrounded by or underwater. That's driven up the price of gas by about 30 cents over the past week. More than a dozen refineries either shut down or cut down their production because of Harvey. And there are now two hurricanes to our south after Harvey and right behind Irma. Another Atlantic storm, Jose, is not expected to become as strong as Irma and is more likely headed for the east coast of the United States rather than Texas or Florida. Jose should make Barbados this weekend. And Hurricane Katia, formed in the Gulf of Mexico just off that country's southern tip, Katia is expected to head back to Mexico. We'll keep an eye on it. We now have three active hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin for the first time in seven years. In the last report, I covered Trump's ham-handed first visit to the disaster zone in Texas. Since that report, Trump returned to Houston for a redo. Some people in the media were impressed with Trump's second visit. Salon.com writer Bob Seska was not one of them.
1: Bob? Thank you, Buzz. They keep falling for the same old flimflam. Not too long ago, we talked about how a batch of pundits appear to be continuously and desperately seeking occasions to normalize President Donald Trump. Last time we were here it was following Trump's mysterious surge of an additional 4,000 troops to Afghanistan without any sort of plan or exit strategy. Following the president's remarks about the deployment, there was yet another roundelay of cable news talkers who scrambled to the next nearest camera in order to praise Trump for his presidentialness. In this case, his momentary engagement with the bare minimum requirements of being chief executive. Naturally, it happened again during Trump's second attempt at an official visit to flood-ravaged Houston on Saturday. It's important to reemphasize that there was exactly nothing special about Trump's visits. Clearly, his first Texas trip didn't even rise to the level of bare minimum. So Trump returned to the Lone Star State for another stab at getting away with barely mimicking what a normal president might do in the aftermath of a major natural disaster. In the process, however, he couldn't help but to lapse into a esque self-satire. Trump nonsensically trolled the news media for allegedly refusing to venture into the winds, as the Coast Guard did, while inexplicably telling Harvey survivors to, quote-unquote, have a good time during this wonderful hurricane. Meanwhile, he haphazardly loaded some boxes into the back of a pickup truck, looking a lot like a guy who's never loaded anything into anything. Generally speaking, Trump wandered through a shelter or two pretending to be helpful, but only ended up looking like a soccer coach's privileged son, watching as the rest of the team runs laps around the field. Despite somnambulating his way through a phony baloney paint by numbers display of empathy and involvement, the pundits fell for it again. Certain players in the news media returned to their knee jerk posture about Trump, powering their way through a minefield of harrowing Trump incompetence to muster undeserved praise for this allegedly presidential commander in chief. Among others, MSNBC's Alex Witt. Narrated live video of Trump awkwardly lumbering his way through Energy Stadium, telling a guest, quote, I've got to tell you, we're seeing a remarkably different president than we have seen in the past. I mean, we have seen him with his grandchildren and he walks hand in hand with them, deplaning Air Force One or seeing them perhaps on the balcony at the White House. And we know that he is a doting grandfather in that regard, end quote. Isn't that adorable? <laughs> she continued, quote, This is a much different president than the one we saw earlier this week in Houston, or the one that, by reputation, we normally see. Likewise, Philip Rucker of the Washington Post returned to his old routine. It was bad enough that Rucker unnecessarily lauded Trump's Afghanistan address, but despite a long roster of horrible things since then, Rucker found another occasion to give Trump credit where none is due. Rucker wrote, quote, The president got to work acting like, well, a president. Uh, no, he actually didn't. In order to be given credit for acting like a president, it's necessary to act like a president most, if not all, of the time. Imagine if your heart surgeon spent most of his time making armpit fart noises while your chest was splayed open, botching nearly everything about the surgery. But because he managed to close the incision, leaving a bloody mess and lost surgical implements underneath, he's praised for acting like a heart surgeon. This is Trump. Just because he was shuttled to a disaster area and proceeded to wander around selling $40 baseball caps to homeless flood victims, even though most of the time he acts like the fourth smirking couch dweller on Fox and Friends, doesn't mean he deserves praise for occasionally getting away with the bare minimum, especially when he needed two tries to finally arrive at mediocrity. This is praiseworthy behavior. Pundits who are smart enough to know better are rewriting mediocrity as an achievement and gross incompetence as normal. Literally anyone can go through the motions of pretending to be president in sporadic microbursts. True leaders, on the other hand, rise above that, and their true nature is observable in most of their actions, even if you disagree with their politics. Trump can't even momentarily pretend to be president without relapsing into being an entitled, grievance-addicted crank during or after the attempt. If he manages to deliver a prompter speech without screeching about his inaugural crowd size or attacking his Republican allies, he soon after reverts back to his obnoxious default, berserker Trump, randomly engaging in nuclear brinksmanship or sympathizing with Nazis or sabotaging his own legal defense. Yet the ruckers of the world keep allowing themselves to be proven wrong time and again. With Trump, our standards for presidential achievement are nearly non-existent. The longer he's president, the more likely it is that we'll have fewer and fewer presidents who are engaged in presidential in the traditional sense, grinding our national reputation down to a vague boardwalk caricature of its former greatness. As Trump is increasingly normalized by pundits, American voters are in severe danger of becoming further anesthetized into believing that his atrocious incompetence is acceptable, even while it noticeably destabilizes the world. Perhaps the most challenging aspect of rebuilding the country post-Trump will be to reacquaint ourselves with the average requirements for being presidential. If there's any silver lining upside to the spectacle of Trump's ongoing series of disasters, maybe it'll snap us back, perhaps painfully, to the traditional standards for choosing who gets to run one-third of the federal government. We can only hope it's not too late to decide to seek presidents who are smarter, more disciplined, and better informed than we are. America can't be exceptional, without exceptional Americans running the show. For now, though, we're stuck with cartoonish poser leadership in the White House and too many news media observers who are willing to convince themselves that this is sporadically acceptable. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob.
0: Catch him at Salon.com every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at realmnetwork.com. I'm proud to be one of the regular guests on that program, and I hope to join Bob again this Tuesday, September 12th. The resistance to this president just got bigger with a decision that hurt and frightened and angered millions of people. Don't dream. It's over. The Dreamer program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, has been ended under orders from President Trump. Trump himself was too nervous, too uncertain about the decision to announce it on his own. He had his Attorney General Jeff Sessions make the announcement, ending protection from deportation for nearly a million people in this country. That includes some 800,000 people who were brought here as children by their migrating parents, but it also includes the families they may have to take with them to their country of origin, a country they and their own families have never known, as they are all thrown out of the country, gradually and painfully. In making Trump's announcement, Sessions took no questions from reporters. He did not lay out a time frame for the mass deportation, but said the DACA program would be phased out. That program had been created through an executive order from President Obama because Congress would not act. Immigration reform was, for a while, a top priority of Republicans as they struggled to win back Hispanic voters they'd lost as the party moved more to the right in the George W. Bush years. But Republican lawmakers could not agree among themselves since many of them oppose immigration altogether. And they saw Obama's executive order as overreach. It's now up to that same Congress to either reinstate the DREAMER program within the next six months or be the party that threw a million people out of the country in the year before running for reelection. The six months they have may not be enough time, considering the gridlock and the general slow movement of Congress. And if this issue stays in the foreground leading into next year's midterm elections, Republicans may pay a high price for their inaction. But the higher stakes are for the people now facing deportation over the coming year, forced out of the only country they know, the country where they have spent most, if not all, of their lives. Trump ended the DACA program despite dire warnings from the nation's biggest corporations, the Speaker of the House, and countless protesters. He ended DACA despite his claim last week that he loves the Dreamers. He ended DACA because it pleases his anti immigration Attorney General Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions. He ended DACA because it pleases the shrinking, angry base that elected him and because a fifth of our nation's governors were threatened to sue Trump if he didn't end DACA. Those red state's governors have angry supporters as well. Ending the DACA program would come gradually. Existing applications will mostly be approved. Some pending renewals will be approved if they pass the new extreme vetting. Otherwise, the word is prepare for departure. A White House memo advised Trump officials and staff to let it be known that DACA recipients should, quote, prepare for and arrange their departure. After staying quiet through the health care debate, President Obama came out swinging following Trump's order to end DACA, calling it cruel and self-defeating. The Democratic leader of the House called Trump's decision a deeply shameful act of political cowardice. Catholic church leaders in this country have condemned Trump's DACA decision and vowed to protect the dreamers they can. The U.S. Bishops' Conference called Trump's decision reprehensible and heartbreaking. They said Trump's decision shows, quote, the absence of mercy and goodwill and a short-sighted vision for our future. Quoting from the bishop's statement, today our nation has done the opposite of how Scripture calls us to respond. It's a step back from the progress that we need to make as a country. This decision, they said, is unacceptable. Across the country, students protested. They walked out of classes in Phoenix, Denver, and Boulder, Reno, throughout New Mexico, and at Loyola University in Chicago, to name a few. These were massive protests in states with big immigrant populations, the students in Phoenix shouting, F Donald Trump, but with the whole word. A thousand students protested in Albuquerque, and thousands walked out of classes at high schools and colleges across that state and across the country. Protesters around the country vowed to fight the death of DACA, quoting a student in Boulder, I thought my country was better than this. Facebook, Apple, and other corporations have promised to fight Trump's decision on the DREAMers. Microsoft calls the decision a big step back for our entire country and vows to protect its employees. Ninety-one percent of DREAMers have jobs, and the U.S. economy would be affected negatively without them. Fifteen state attorneys general have joined forces in a lawsuit against Trump over his DACA decision, and they have been joined in the lawsuit by Microsoft and Amazon. They may be successful, since many are the same states that sued over his Muslim ban. After hearing tons of negative public feedback, including from his nemesis Obama, Trump has since announced that if Congress fails to fix DACA, as he's asked, he will revisit the issue. It appears he decided as he did based on an artificial deadline set by that lawsuit filed against DACA by those Republican governors. But it was also something he promised his supporters during the campaign. And it reinforces the notion that with his aggression against Mexicans, Muslims, and transgenders, and his praise for Joe Arpaio, Confederate statues, and the good people in a white supremacist protest, Trump is carrying out a white supremacist agenda. If we have to close down our government, said Trump, we're building that wall. That was the campaign rally Trump on August 22nd in Phoenix. Back in the real world, Congress needs another short term spending bill to get us through the rest of the calendar year. Without congressional approval, the money runs out and government services begin to shut down. Trump was telling his supporters that if the bill doesn't contain $1.6 billion for his wall, he'd shut the joint down. His supporters cheered, of course, and chanted, build that wall, as they repeated after him. Throwing meat to the dogs, he slammed Democrats for opposing the wall. But believe me, he said, meaning we shouldn't, if we have to close down our government, we're building that wall. Back in the real world that exists outside campaign rallies, not so much. A little over two weeks later, the Trump administration is telling Republicans in Congress there will be no shutdown. Trump, by the way, had been threatening to shut down the government for months. In May, he said that what Congress needs to stop the gridlock is a, quote, good shutdown. Congress has till the end of the month to pass that spending bill. That's also the deadline for raising that debt ceiling to keep the U.S. from defaulting on its loans, lowering our credit rating, and throwing our financial system into chaos. And the Trump administration is also telling Congress he still wants to build that wall. San Diego is where four different companies will each build a concrete prototype of the wall. The companies are being paid about a half million bucks a piece for these 30-foot high, 30-foot wide prototypes. The entries will be judged on their resistance to human climbing, tipping, or perforating. They are also expected to be attractive, at least on the U.S. side of the fence. This week, the White House is awarding For more contracts, for four more prototypes, the see through walls Trump had conjured, even taller, maybe 50 feet high instead of 30. His idea of topping the fences with solar panels, meanwhile, has fallen by the wayside. Turns out it would be too expensive to run transmission lines to the nearest electric plant. Maybe just a see through wall then, or something that looks nice on the U.S. side. We've had time now to hear what the public thinks about Trump's pardon of Joe Arpaio. Barely a third of Americans approve of the pardon. Six in 10 say Trump was wrong to issue it. The elderly, former renegade sheriff willfully ignored court orders not to detain people he suspected of being undocumented immigrants and then turning them over to the feds. From John McCain to the ACLU, Americans, as reflected in this NBC News poll, strongly disagree with the president's pardon, with a 6-in-10 majority. The poll also found that 64% of Americans disapprove of Trump's decision to end the Dreamer program. Fewer than one in three Americans think throwing out the kids is all right. Trump's other favorite sheriff, by the way, Milwaukee renegade David Clark, has now resigned that job to, quote, pursue other opportunities. Among other things, Clark will be flogging his new book, which got a plug on the Sunday morning after Hurricane Harvey inundated Houston, got a plug on Trump's Twitter page. Clark is also leaving after being accused of allowing an inmate to give birth on the floor of her cell. The baby did not live. Clark had talked about pursuing a gig in Trump's Homeland Security Department. If Trump cannot repeal Obamacare, as he promised, then he will choke it off wherever he can. Late last week, the Trump administration announced it's cutting the advertising budget for the Affordable Care Act by up to 90 percent. The advertising is necessary to inform the public of its options, to inform the public when the insurance is available for purchase and when it is not. The Trump White House is also cutting the money spent on navigators, people who help a customer pick the plan that's best for them. That money's being cut by 50 percent. Quoting the press secretary for Trump's Health and Human Services Department, the administration is determined to serve the American people instead of trying to sell them a bad deal. Even, apparently, if it's the law of the land. Even if, as the Kaiser Family Foundation points out, the result will be fewer people insured, and only the sickest among them will sign up, driving premiums up even more. Trump has made it known from the beginning he plans to let the ACA itself get sick enough to die. As he said in a campaign speech last summer, let Obamacare implode. A new Fox News poll shows that the word that best describes Donald Trump is unstable. 60% of Americans surveyed for Fox either said Trump is completely or somewhat unstable, as they chose from a list of words that also included bully and presidential. The Fox News poll traditionally skews in favor of Trump by about five points, so it could be that as many as 65% of us believe the most powerful man in the world is unstable the latest big developments in the Russia investigation, a North Korea update, and the rest of the news after this. There is a way to make your ears happy. You'll have happy ears when you pop in a brand new pair of earbuds from tweakedaudio.com, especially the new Hegon Sport earbuds with silicone caps to help them stay in place. They're water-resistant with a tangle-free cord and a travel pouch. Now, like other tweaked audio products, the Hegon Sport Buds include an inline mic, a gold-plated plug, and, of course, extra gels. The Hegons are orange and gray, but tweaked audio's other earbuds come in a range of colors and materials, including wood. You can even get buds in sets of two or three, and tweaked audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly cannot beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed. And the shipping is free anywhere in the world. And because everything does sound better on tweaked audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com and all my other great sponsors, as well as through the Donate button at buzzburbank.com. The biggest Trump scandal revelations over this holiday week were, one, that Russian hacking of state voter registration rolls was more widespread than we thought. Two, that special counsel Robert Mueller now has a copy of a long, angry letter dictated by Trump himself explaining why he really fired FBI Director James Comey. That letter alone could be hard evidence of obstruction of justice. Three, that Mueller has now brought the IRS's criminal investigations unit into the Trump-Russia investigation. That aspect of the probe appears to cross a line Trump has drawn at which he thinks the special counsel would overstep his bounds, which could be grounds for having Mueller fired. Four, that pro-Trump Republicans in Congress are working very hard to discredit and or kill the Trump-Russia investigation. And five, that Facebook was used by the Russians to change voters' minds in key districts. We'll look at these one at a time. In key districts around the country last election day, there were problems at the polls. In Texas, there were big glitches in the mostly Democratic city of Dallas. It happened in Arizona, Georgia, Virginia, and North Carolina. In Durham, North Carolina, the phones rang off the hook at the voter registration office from voters concerned about being sent from one polling place to another and ultimately not being able to vote at all. Scores of people were told they had already voted when they had not voters in that bluish district of a swing state were being turned away. One precinct was shut down for hours. There's no evidence the Russians had anything to do with that, mainly because no one's bothered to check. It felt like tampering, said one local official. But in at least 21 states, Russian hackers did gain access to voter registration files. To this day, there has been no close examination of those files. That's concerning since changing even one letter or one numeral in a voter's file can disqualify that voter and eliminate their ballot before it's even cast. And this sort of hacking continued into election day itself. The voting machines don't appear to have been hacked, just the registration computers that determine who's allowed to vote. Hillary Clinton still won Durham County, North Carolina with 78 percent of the vote, but Confidence in the voting system, as Putin had hoped, had been shaken. Looking back on it now, Facebook says it sold $100,000 worth of ads to Russian trollers through its self-service ad system in just one month last summer leading up to the November election. The trolls are known to be tied directly to Vladimir Putin and Russian intelligence. Anyone can buy an ad on Facebook. It's handled by computer That becomes a problem when foreign money is being spent to influence a U.S. election, because that is a crime. Facebook had denied repeatedly for months that it sold ads to Russians, but it's been pressed on the issue by reporters and even congressional and FBI investigators. Now, Facebook has conducted its own internal investigation. What it discovered highlights Russia's use of social media to spread the original fake news, known to past generations as propaganda. Facebook says a significant number of the ads were geographically targeted to key districts in swing states. Quoting the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, they were at a level of sophistication where they would have needed assistance from the campaign, meaning the Trump campaign. Facebook says it will continue checking its records, looking for more. It says it is now cooperating with all investigations, including the Mueller investigation. Investigators believe Facebook may be the key to identifying any Americans who may have helped Russia target the fake news to the most vulnerable districts. In the meantime, Facebook says it has shut down the Russian trollers' accounts. In May, Donald Trump dictated a letter, a long, rambling, and angry letter explaining why he had decided to fire FBI Director James Comey. A lot of that letter focused on the number of times Comey had said Trump was not personally under investigation. In the Russia matter, at that time, White House lawyer Don McGahn put a stop to the letter that's in the hands of the special counsel investigating Russia. Instead, the administration issued back then a letter written by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein that gave a reason that shifted the focus off of Russia. Playing on a concern of Democrats, Rosenstein offered a reason for Comey's dismissal that he'd mishandled the Clinton email case, reopening it publicly 11 days before the election, and then just before the day itself, announcing it had turned up no evidence of wrongdoing. Same as the prior investigation. But the reasons for firing Comey kept changing. Later, the White House would say Comey was fired because his employees had lost confidence in him, which was proven to be untrue. Trump would go on to tell Lester Holt he fired Comey because of the Russia investigation. And Trump told Russian officials in the White House that firing nutjob Comey had taken the pressure of the investigation off of him, which has also proven to be untrue. And yes, Bob Mueller has now teamed up again. First, it was with New York's attorney general. Now, With the Criminal Investigations Unit at the IRS, both alliances have the same target, Trump's finances. The CIs at the IRS number in the thousands, and they specialize in financial crimes, including money laundering and tax evasion. Mueller's worked with these folks before when he was a U.S. attorney, and he liked their work. The IRS also, of course, has Trump's tax returns, documents Trump has kept hidden from the voters. The IRS also knows whether Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort bothered to check a box on his tax returns indicating he had money in foreign bank accounts, which he did. If Manafort failed to check that box, he would face a felony charge that could be used to flip him as a witness against Trump. And fighting these charges could financially strap Manafort. As one retired IRS CI told the New York Times, it took an accountant to nab Al Capone. But on Capitol Hill, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes and fellow committee Republican Trey Gowdy have been running their own investigation into the investigation. Nunes had recused himself from the actual Trump-Russia investigation early on when he was caught making a secretive trip to the White House to try to help prove Trump's false claim that Obama had ordered a wiretapping of Trump Tower Nunez and Gowdy, without notifying their fellow committee members, sent staffers to Britain where they hoped to speak with former spy Christopher Steele, the author of the dossier that's thought to be the basis for much of the FBI's Trump Russia investigation. Now, using the power of his committee, the recused Chairman Nunez has subpoenaed Attorney General Jeff Sessions to try to get the FBI's documents pertaining to that dossier. Nunes, Gowdy, and others hope to cast doubt on the credibility of the Steele dossier to discredit the entire investigation or at least muddy the waters. That may be difficult since Steele and his work are highly respected among U.S. intelligence circles. And remember, Sessions is also recused from the investigation. But Nunes is angry that Sessions hasn't gathered those documents and turned them over to the Congressional Committee that requested them. Nunez has now threatened to drag Sessions before the committee with a subpoena to publicly explain why he hasn't turned over those dossier-related documents to support this attempt to derail the investigation. It is unusual, perhaps unprecedented, for a Congressional Committee or anyone to subpoena the FBI and or the Justice Department as is the case here. If Nunes doesn't have those documents by September 14th, Sessions would be subpoenaed that day to explain why. It is equally unusual to see a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Justice Department in a bitter standoff with each other. But most things Washington these days are unusual. Nunes also dragged before the committee Obama's National Security adviser Susan Rice to ask if anyone in Obama's White House requested that the names of Trump associates found in CIA wiretaps of Russians be unmasked. Her answer is still no. And a few other notes on the Russia story this week. Donald Trump Jr. is testifying today behind closed doors for the Senate Judiciary Committee. He had been invited to testify publicly but negotiated a deal with the committee to do it privately instead. The committee wants to know more about that meeting he eagerly attended in early June of last year involving multiple Russian officials, his brother-in-law Jared Kushner, and Trump campaign chief Paul Manafort. Now that the Trump administration has evicted Russian officials from two U.S. embassies to retaliate for Russia expelling some of ours, smoke was seen coming from the Russian consulate in San Francisco. As one Russian official put it, they're not electing a pope. They were likely burning evidence of espionage. In Kenya, the Supreme Court there has declared the recent presidential election there void and it has ordered a do-over. There were voting irregularities. Worth noting, the disputed president of Kenya used the same IT services company in his campaign as Donald Trump had used in his. And after thorough review, Trump's own Justice Department now confirms that Trump was wrong, dead wrong, in claiming that President Obama had ordered wiretaps of Trump Tower. Trump's Justice Department, had to be taken to court with a freedom of information lawsuit to produce the results of its investigation of Trump's wild claim. Trump had also called Obama low and sick to have issued the order that Obama never issued. The stakes with North Korea got higher this week as it tested an underground weapon 10 times more powerful than anything it had detonated before, five times more powerful than the atomic bombs the U.S. dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima during World War II. It caused a 6.3 earthquake that was felt in China. It was a hydrogen bomb and it worked, and it's said to be small enough now to fit on the head of a missile. And we now know, as of last week, that North Korea has an intercontinental ballistic missile that can reach the United States. What we don't know is whether North Korea yet has a nose cone that can protect its weapons, burning re-entry through the atmosphere. In the meantime, North Korea would appear to have the option of setting off its hydrogen bomb over the U.S., creating an electromagnetic wave that would cut off our electricity and all forms of communication. Leaders from around the world have condemned what North Korea has done and continues to do. Japan called for and got an emergency session of the United Nations Security Council on Monday, in which the Secretary General called North Korea's latest test, its latest provocation, profoundly destabilizing. Russia condemned it. Even China, the North's biggest and closest ally, condemned it. The UN was ready to hit North Korea with more and harsher sanctions, further isolating it, cutting off more money and supplies. The U.S. is also talking tougher sanctions. Trump even threatened to cut off business with any country doing business with North Korea. But the U.S. is talking just as much about military action. Defense Secretary Mattis promised any threat to the United States or its territories, including Guam, or our allies, will be met with a massive military response, a response both effective and overwhelming. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, told the Security Council that Kim Jong-un, quote, is begging for war. Enough, she added, is enough. The world is calling for talks to end this game of chicken. Talks are exactly what Kim wants. That's why the nuclear weapons. Kim wants to be taken seriously. He wants his impoverished but muscled little country to be a player in world politics. He's armed himself to get our attention and it's working. U.S. policy has been consistently no talks with North Korea until it drops its nuclear weapons program. Meanwhile, back in the Middle East, The Pentagon has admitted that it had 2,600 more troops in Afghanistan than it had previously said. Defense Secretary James Mattis says he inherited a strange accounting procedure and he's ordered a review of just how the troops are counted. That revised number brings the current number of troops in Afghanistan to 11,000 or so, with another 4,000 on the way, making for about 15,000 in all. But those 4,000 extra troops approved by Trump have not yet been deployed. The deployment orders haven't even been issued. Also from the Middle East comes word that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has turned his calm, statesmanlike demeanor into something more akin to Trump. See if this sounds familiar. Netanyahu has an angry base of his own, and he's become more nationalistic. He's also started... Bashing the media in Israel using the phrase fake news, and he accuses the left of conducting a witch hunt with their investigations of his financial dealings. Also, like Trump, Netanyahu has attacked his own country's judicial system. Like Trump, he's threatening to expel immigrants, in this case, those from Africa. Despite his long reign as Israel's prime minister, Netanyahu is now campaigning for re election as an outsider as an outsider, not part of the elitist left, he says. And like Trump, Netanyahu is being investigated for corruption. The State Department now says that even more Americans were hurt by the ongoing acoustic attack in Cuba. Three more U.S. workers at our embassies in Havana have suffered symptoms of these attacks, bringing the total to 19 injured. The injuries range from headaches to permanent hearing loss and traumatic brain injury. The U.S. State Department is still investigating and says it still has not found the source of the sonic waves that are causing these injuries. In the meantime, state says it's taking care of its people, giving them, quote, all the care that they need. How goes our war on drugs? It was President Nixon who first declared that war 46 years ago. Today in Chicago, there's an eight-foot-high portrait of Nixon, a mosaic made from used drug bags soon on display at a local gallery to raise awareness. Inside each of these dime bags is a trace of something, heroin, crack, meth, pills, or pot. The artist found the bags on the streets of his own neighborhood. How goes our just say no? Ten years after Nixon declared a war on drugs, Nancy Reagan declared just say no. And now another 26 years has passed and Attorney General Jeff Sessions has announced an escalation of that war right down to the people who use marijuana legally in their states. If only there were some way to know how this will turn out. Quoting the artist in Chicago who picked up 150 bags a day every day, it's very depressing. He picked up nearly 9,000 bags before he finally stopped and turned them into a message through 150 pieces of art. The message, says the artist, our current way of helping people isn't helping at all. Banks used to be such sticklers for numbers, all numbers. Now just some numbers, apparently. Wells Fargo, for example, was off a bit when it reported its employees, under pressure from above, set up more than two million phony accounts in the names of customers who had no knowledge of what had been done, nor had they given permission for it. Turns out it was three and a half million, not two, but what are numbers to a bank after all? And it's now been discovered that Wells Fargo had signed up more than a half million people for online bill pay without their knowledge or permission. If Wells Fargo thought it was climbing out of a legal and PR nightmare, it was off on that estimate too. It is now Wells Fargo under pressure from lawsuits and from the lawmakers who represent the customers who got used by Wells Fargo. The lawmakers had turned their attention away from Wells Fargo after pressuring the bank to fire some people, cut some executive salaries, and expand the bank's account analysis reports. Wells Fargo now says it will refund nearly a billion dollars for the fees it charged for these bogus accounts and services and another $142 million to settle a related lawsuit. A woman in the back of the room laughed out loud a little When Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama got to the part about Jeff Sessions' record of, quote, treating all Americans equally under the law, the Republican didn't like it that a woman found his claim amusing, as a Senate committee discussed confirming Sessions as this country's new top law enforcement officer. He didn't like that she was part of a group of women dressed in pink there to protest Sessions' confirmation as Attorney General. So Capitol Police took the woman into custody for disrupting a Senate proceeding which didn't actually happen since Senator Shelby continued reading a statement praising Sessions. Last May, this woman was convicted for a crime called parading, as well as for the disruption charge. The government's argument in its case against her was so weak, the chief judge on the Superior Court bench in Washington, D.C. threw out the jury's guilty verdict. Federal prosecutors then offered to settle the case, but Desiree Ferruz says she will not plead guilty, Even if it means going to jail. Two other protesters were also arrested and convicted, even though they did not laugh at the claim that Jeff Sessions treats Americans equally. The pets orphaned by hurricanes, astounding entertainment news, and some brief partial nudity in the third and final segment up next. I really am grateful for the support you've shown for this free and independent news and comment by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You always land right on your very own Amazon page, and you always get the same great prices. Trump hates Amazon. If you believe in what we're doing here, it's very important you go to buzzburbank.com, click on that Amazon link, and bookmark the page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link even just once helps sustain this show. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less for Prime members. Plus, you get Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music, books, and more. And please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office or school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already do this, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. We usually don't think much or often about the animals living in shelters. It's very much on the mind of Elton Castee, who is currently living in a shelter cage to raise money for the pets now flooding the shelters after the floods of Hurricane Harvey. Until recently, Eric had a dog he had adopted from the SPCA in Los Angeles. It was his best friend for the rest of its life, and when it died, Eric wanted to give back to the organization that had given him so much, his local SPCA. and he's not coming out of that cage until he's raised one hundred thousand dollars for his local shelter and another fifty grand for the shelters housing the hurricane's orphaned pets. Hundreds of animals left homeless by the storm have been scattered to shelters across the country for adoption as far away as San Diego and Seattle by the hundreds. The National Guards rescued hundreds of pets so far, many of them now sheltered in Dallas awaiting adoption. Eric is live streaming his cage life on YouTube with details of how you can kick in a little something for his causes or you can check out your own local SPCA. Elsewhere in Texas, a couple of real-life cowpokes have been riding through high water and saving horses by the dozens along with 600 head of cattle. The heroes in that story sound as cowboy as they are. Chance Ward and his 17-year-old son, Rowdy. Donald Trump has chosen a new face to head up NASA. He's Oklahoma Congressman Jim Bridenstine, who absolutely has no experience in the space program. Both of Florida's Republican senators are unhappy about Trump's decision, since the space program is a big part of their state's economy. Quoting Florida Senator Bill Nelson, the head of NASA ought to be a space professional, not a politician. NASA has traditionally been uninfluenced by politics. This could change that. And the opinion of those Florida senators is important since Bridenstine will have to be confirmed by the Senate. Senator Nelson flew on a mission on the space shuttle Columbia and serves on the committee that oversees NASA. Watch this. Space. Trump has also named his Surgeon General, the nation's doctor. He's Dr. Jerome Adams, who served as Mike Pence's health director in Indiana. Adams' specialty is anesthesia with undergrad degrees in biochemistry and biopsychology. He promises to advocate for science and compassion. But as a gun owner, he also believes the key to reducing violent crime is to address mental health, not guns. couple of stories now about girl power. Peggy Whitson certainly has some. She's now spent more days in space than any other American, 665 in all. She has spent over 60 hours outside the craft in 10 spacewalks, another record. Saturday night, she returned safely to Earth after her latest marathon in orbit, 288 days, another record, for the longest time on the International Space Station. Because U.S. astronauts are still commuting to and from that station by carpooling with cosmonauts. She touched down in Kazakhstan in a Soyuz capsule, along with NASA colleague Jack Fisher. A woman is now the most experienced U.S. astronaut in history. This one's also about girl power. In Miami Beach, a six-foot python was slithering down one of the main sidewalks frequented by tourists. It's our way of saying welcome to Florida. Miami, police apprehended the wayward reptile and no one was injured or even severely threatened. But let the owner of a restaurant along that sidewalk be more specific, and we quote, first a male officer came and didn't want to get too close, so a second male officer came and said, hell no, he wasn't going to touch it. Then, says the eyewitness, a lady officer came, and she was a genius. She didn't panic. She put on gloves and picked up the python and put it in a little cooler. And our witness adds, the guys gathered around were screaming, but she was calm. Girl Power. Coca-Cola believes things go better in a world without the sugar that's such a key ingredient in its products, considering all the obesity and diabetes. So Coke is now offering a million-dollar prize to the person or group to offer a viable alternative to sugar. As Coke describes it, a natural, safe, reduced, low- or no-calorie compound that creates the taste sensation of sugar when used in beverages and foods. Degree of difficulty? Coke has ruled out stevia, monk fruit, and any internationally protected species or substance. You have until October 3rd, 2018, before the million-dollar bounty is withdrawn. Semi-finalists, if there are any, will be announced in February. It's a search that began in the early 1950s, leading to Coke's introduction of tab, which was sweetened with saccharin. Passings and Passages Walter Becker ultimately joined up with Donald Fagan in 1967 to create a sound that made hits in the 70s and 80s, a sound that blended jazz and clever harmonies unlike anything else on the charts. Unlike other bands, they were not so much about sex, drugs, or even rock and roll. Becker and Fagan were focused on the music, with Walter Becker doing most of the arrangements. Steely Dan sold more than 40 million albums and have their rightful place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Becker and Fagan were mutual fans of science fiction, the blues, and comedians W.C. Fields and the Marx Brothers. Becker died Sunday at age 67 while recovering from a procedure, we're told. A lot of us miss him already, but we'll always have the music left behind. Actor Richard Anderson has also died, him at the age of 91. He played Oscar Goldman on The Six Million Dollar Man and its spin-off, The Bionic Woman. He's remembered fondly by both Lee Majors and Lindsey Wagner. Anderson also played on Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five-O, Dynasty, Perry Mason, The Fugitive, Charlie's Angels, The A-Team, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., Bonanza, Ironside, Daniel Boone, Dan August, and Murder, she wrote. In other words, a lot of hit TV shows. Anderson was also in movies, including Forbidden Planet and The Long Hot Summer. And you may recognize the name Alf Clausen if your clue is The Simpsons. Alf Clausen composed the music for that series for 27 years, winning 21 Emmy nominations. He composed Stop the Planet of the Apes, I Want to Get Off, among other classics. He's not dead. He's been fired. He was fired for spending too much money, even on a show as profitable still as The Simpsons. Clausen used a 35-piece orchestra every week to score the show, costing millions of dollars each year. One of the current producers says the studio is looking for, quote, a different kind of music, meaning cheaper. Curb Your Execution. A ninth season of Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm premieres on HBO October 1st. In the meantime, there's a documentary you may want to see that drops on Netflix two days before that premiere. It's a documentary about how a 30-minute comedy saved a man's life. Long shot. Absolutely, which is why that's the name of the documentary. It's the story of Juan Catalan, who was arrested for a murder he did not commit. Juan was arrested because he had no ticket stub, no evidence to prove that he was at an L.A. Dodgers game on the night of the killing and therefore could not have been the killer. And he had no witnesses because he went to the game by himself. Larry David was also at that Dodgers game, along with a camera crew to film a scene for his show. David and his crew have since allowed Catalan and his lawyer to go through every frame of footage they had shot to try to find a picture of Juan. There were 56,000 faces in the crowd at Dodger Stadium that night, so the odds were against them. But they found it. They found proof that Juan was at that game at the time of the murder and was therefore innocent. The scene being shot for the TV show, by the way is of Larry watching the game with a hooker he'd picked up so he could get to the stadium by using the carpool lane. But that's fiction. That such silliness would save a man's life is a fact. And if you thought the theaters were empty in last week's report, this weekend was even worse. It was Labor Day weekend, traditionally a weekend for blockbuster releases, and there were none. Business was down by 22% compared to last Labor Day weekend, the worst box office performance since 1998. After a three day weekend, the number one movie, Hitman's Bodyguard, made the same money it made in two days the weekend before just $10 million. The strippers who file in and out of the county clerk's office in Palm Beach, Florida, are there to pay their license fees. And because strippers get paid in cash, they pay their county license fees with cash. 54-year-old Anita Petame was one of the employees handling that money, and her husband had been really burning through some cash at Home Depot. So allegedly, Anita started pocketing some of that stripper cash. She would give the strippers their licenses, and then she would take the money for herself. The county clerk noticed that licenses were being issued, but they weren't showing up in the reports. That's when it was learned that Anita had also apparently been skimming money from the Victim Service Program, which is funded by fines paid by convicts who would rather pay cash than do their community service time. Anita Pedime is out on bail now, but also facing her day in court. And if you owe fines or fees to the Danvers Peabody Library in Massachusetts, the librarians would like it known they do not accept Canadian currency. They would also like their patrons to know they do not accept Chuck E. Cheese arcade tokens, no matter how much those tokens look like quarters, especially when stacked between real quarters. Apparently, Chuck E. Cheese tokens have become a real problem for the library, quoting its Facebook post, since they are not legal tender, we cannot accept them. In February of this year, -year 72-year-old Robert Fergus and his 69-year-old wife Ruth drove their BMW, to the luxury hotel known as the McDonald Lock Ranch Hotel in Highland, Perthshire, and checked in. But it was not the sort of stay you would expect for a couple of well-to-do retirees. After what their lawyer describes as a bad reaction to alcohol, Mr. Fergus proceeded to run naked through the hotel with a pair of scissors. Never run with scissors. Fergus allegedly used those scissors to cut some cables at the reception desk, threatened to kill the people behind it, and he allegedly then grabbed a sign from the restaurant and used it to break out a window. He was still naked, of course. Mrs. Ferguson, meanwhile, was allegedly threatening to shoot members of the hotel's well-manicured staff. Guests were so horrified some ran away, as much as two miles away, to the town nearby." The Fergusons then fled in their beamer with the still-intoxicated Bob Ferguson at the wheel. That was in February. In a Scottish courtroom this past week, the Fergusons were fined about $5,300 U.S. and ordered by a magistrate to pay for the damages they'd caused. And 72-year-old Bob Ferguson has been banned from driving for a year. Don't drink and drive. Don't run with scissors. What you're wearing at the time is much less important. If you're not doing anything Saturday, there is the annual naked bike ride in Philadelphia. Thousands of cyclists from miles around will gather in the city of brotherly love to ride through the streets for 10 miles as bare as they dare. Some people will cover this or that with underwear, bits of cloth, but others will be as naked as the day they were born or with or without body paint. But there's more to it than just that. There's a festival before the ride at three with the main event at five. The point, say the organizers, is to promote bicycling as an environmentally clean way to get around and to promote positive body image, no matter what shape your shape is in, and that nudity doesn't mean sex. See last week's story about the violin playing nude skydiver. And Philadelphia, PA, is not the only place they'll be pedaling pantsless. Saturday is actually world nude bike ride, so check your local listings if you're so inclined. And finally, you can swim, but you cannot hide. From the beach at Surf City, North Carolina, a man jumped into the ocean to escape the police who were pursuing him. Some officers had asked him to step out of his car when they spotted what appeared to be drugs inside. He did and ran. Where the suspect thought he would swim to is anybody's guess, but he swam outward 4,000 feet, the distance of 40 football fields, end to end. That's how far out he swam. He still didn't get far. At about the time a police drone appeared overhead, the fugitive noticed something even more ominous in the water, a shark. In a stroke of good luck, the shark was uninterested as the Coast Guard and other officials got involved in this sea hunt. The suspect was arrested on a beach in a neighboring town, giving him a chance to change into clothing that was drier and more orange. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and Comment. Buzz 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 The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.